Well, good morning. My name is Mark Schuler. I'm the pastor of adult ministries here at Harvest, and uh, welcome. We're glad you're here. On behalf of uh, Pastor Tim and the elders, just thankful for the opportunity to preach this morning. And uh, just a reminder to be praying for Pastor Tim, Pastor Steve, and uh, Steve Bells are one of our elders here. They're still in Haiti. This is a big day for them as they're dedicating the building, installing elders, and they'll be making their way back uh, early next week. So just a reminder to be praying for them as they wrap up ministry and a lot of great things happening there in Haiti. We're excited to be a part of that. Uh, as we pray for them, we're reminded that we're in a prayer series here. And uh, so I want to start with this quote here for this message. It's a quote that I took from the book that we've been reading as a church called Journey to Victorious Praying. It's from Jim Cimbala, <clears throat> and it goes like this. A God is not aloof. He says continually through the centuries, I'll help you. I really will. When you're ready to throw up your hands, throw them up to me, end quote. If you remember, uh, last week, Pastor Tim preached a message called Laying Hold of Our Weakness, and he talked about going to God in, in, in our weakness, in our fear, in our anxiety, in our temptations. And so today, I'm going to preach the part two of that message as we look into Mark's gospel, and as we look at two very different people who did just that. They went to Jesus in their weakness, and they discovered his greatness, and so grab your Bible and go to Mark 5. That's where we're going to be this morning. Uh, Mark chapter 5, verses 21 to 43. And the title being here, uh, Laying Hold of Weakness, Part 2. Mark 5, 21 to 43. If you have your message notes there, let's jump right into this. And uh, we got uh, a number of verses to cover this morning. So in my weakness, here's what, what should I do? The first point. Number one, get to Jesus. He knows your situation perfectly. Get to Jesus. He knows your situation perfectly. Let's start at verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. As I read this, just get the picture in your mind here. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter's at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. Let's stop uh, there for now. When you read through Mark's gospel, you see that this is pretty typical. Right, Jesus had crossed over the Sea of Galilee again. He was in a boat again. There was a large crowd of people who wanted his attention again. And so here he is. He's, he's standing by the sea. He's surrounded by many, many people and here begins the tale of two people who encounter the Lord of all. And these two people who you'll see in the scriptures today are an interesting pair. As I read this week, they have no relationship to each other. There's no reason they would even know each other. But they're brought together in the text of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're two, a man and a woman. One rich, one poor. One respected, one rejected. One honored, one ashamed, one leading the synagogue, 
the other excommunicated from the synagogue, one with a 12-year-old daughter dying, one with a 12-year-old disease suffering. The man is the ruler. The woman is humble. He is brought low. She is lifted high. The ruler and the outcast and the scene is set. So cool. What will Jesus do with these two? Well, let's start with Jairus. Look back here. It says, Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, verse 22, Jairus was his name, Jairus by name. And seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. So Jairus is one of the rulers of the synagogue. Very well respected, very honored position in the community there. He was a, a man of prestige. But listen now. Wealth and power and prestige are relevant when your 12-year-old little girl is dying. And 12 years old, I know, maybe isn't that little, especially back then. But a daddy's girl is always a little girl in her daddy's eyes. Jairus is desperate. The easiest way to get to a man's heart, if you think about Jairus here, the easiest way is probably through his wife or his daughter. You see your wife or your daughter sick or suffering or to the point of death. Nothing's going to move a man quite like that. I can remember one day when my oldest daughter, she's eight now, but when she was one, Kate, she had to go get a CAT scan. And she was a one-year-old. And what happened was uh, we had a babysitter watching her, and she went to go take her for a walk. We lived in a townhome at the time in Aurora, Illinois. And you could either go out the garage, right, to get to the driveway and the patio or the, uh, or the walkway, or you could go uh, out our front door to which there was a landing and six concrete steps to go down. So the babysitter took her out, strapped her in the stroller, had her on the front uh, landing there at the front door, and I think she was just going to kind of, you know, bring her down. Well, she turns around to lock the door, and you can imagine the stroller goes rolling, and so um, Kate goes buckled in the stroller, but down, and, and over, up on end, and lands at the bottom. So I, I run home. Stacy races home. We take her to the ER to get a CAT scan, make sure there's no injuries. And so I can still remember the day we're sitting there, and they, she's one, so they have to, you know, she's on the board ready to go into the machine, but they have to pin her down. You know, so they're holding her hands down with a strap and her forehead, right, with a strap so she stays really still, and she's just kind of looking over at us you know, completely scared, what's going on? I mean, I mean, church, we are far more dependent on God than we realize. We're far more dependent on God than we realize. And, and, and so we're watching her go into the machine, and, and what, what's a father's love to say? God, let me, I want to change it. I want to help. I want to do something. Let me take her place. I, I want to I do something here. A father's love, you know, is a protecting love for his wife and his kids. Thankfully, Kate had no injuries, praise God. But for Jairus, to see his little girl suffering and dying must have made him just weep and his heart break, helpless to change the situation. And we find out, you know, in Luke's gospel that she was his only little girl. Luke 8, 42. She was his only little girl. And so think about this. For years, 12 years, she brought sunshine and laughter and life and joy into that home as only little girls can do. I, mean, I was thinking in my mind this week, just, just my girls, just playing the tape recorder in my mind of them. Hi, Daddy. Hey, Dad. Dad's home. 
Love you, Daddy. Good night, Dad. Let's do something, Dad. Thinking about that, thinking then when they were so small, they're like smaller than the size of a football, you know, and they're falling asleep in your arms or, you know, feeding them when they couldn't even lift a spoon, reading to them, teaching them how to ride a bike, praying over them when they're sick. Jairus is desperate, guys. The father's heart is breaking. He leaves the family. He goes searching for Jesus. He sees him. He goes up to him. He falls down at his feet. Please, help. I'm desperate. Earnest plea. He has only one hope. He implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter's at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her that she may be made well and live. Whatever Jairus believed about Jesus at this point, we aren't quite sure, but we know this. He believed that Jesus could just put his hand on her and she would be healed. He knew that he was helpless and weak, but Jesus was powerful and able, and so he goes and he gets himself to Jesus. Now, let's take a time out on Jairus. Let's push pause on Jairus for a moment because there was another needy person in the crowd that day. There was another needy person, a weak, desperate person that day. It was a woman with a hemorrhage. So Jesus, what happens is he begins to walk with Jairus. How exciting, right? He goes with him to his house. They begin to walk together, and it says they're being thronged about by the crowd. They're just intensely pressing against Jesus. He's walking. They just want to be around him, and they're touching and pressing, and let me see, and let me get close, and you can get, get the pictures. They're kind of making their way through. And now, verse 24, it says, A great crowd followed him and thronged about him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. The woman had a bleeding problem, and listen, she had a bleeding problem as long as Jairus' daughter was alive, 12 years we don't know what caused it. The scripture doesn't tell us. But look, this, this would have had a huge effect on her life. Socially, spiritually, physically, emotionally. For example, I wrote this down. <clears throat> According to Jewish law, her husband could not touch her as long as she was hemorrhaging or he would be considered ceremonially unclean. According to Jewish law, everything she touched was unclean and whoever touched her was unclean, and whoever touched anything that she touched was unclean. What kind of life is that? Did she have a family? Did she still have friends? Was she known as the 12-year outcast, the bleeding woman? How lonely, right? How miserable and how condemning, because listen now, according to Jewish law, she could not even enter the place of worship as long as she was bleeding, she was ceremonially unclean. And her bleeding, it says, keeps getting worse and worse. And on top of all of that, she's taken advantage of by, by, the, by the doctors and the quacks who try to take advantage of her situation and steal her finances. She's living in poverty. Verse 26, she suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She's desperate. She has only one hope. And so she, like Jairus, she believes the Lord can do what she cannot. Bring healing. Bring healing into her life. Make a change. 
And so this here is the account of two people, two very different people who did something very similar. They got themselves to Jesus Christ the Lord. They got themselves before the Lord of all. And that's exactly what we need to do in the midst of our weakness. We're, we're talking about prayer here in this series, right? And so we're talking about this going to God and calling out to him in prayer. Letting whatever weakness you have in your life right now lead you to the God who gives wisdom, who is almighty, who gives comfort and assurance, who is a present help in times of trouble. Call out to God. Be real before him. You know, I heard this once that um, if we're praying but we're not really praying our heart, then we're not really praying. You know, not in the way that God intends, right? So God wants us to pour out our heart before him, to share all of our heart before him. 134 times I saw this week in the Bible, it says that people, uh, just this word, cried out to God. It came up 134 times, people cried out to God. They raised their voices and they cried out to God, who is omniscient, who is able, who is for us. I mean, I love what David said in Psalm 34.4. He raises his voice and he said, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He answered me. I sought God and God answered me. Not I sought the Lord and he ignored me. Not I sought the Lord and he refused to give me help and wisdom. Listen now, not I sought the Lord and he made me feel really bad about my struggle to be in the word daily. Not, not, I sought the Lord, and he said, come back when you have more faith. I sought the Lord, and he answered me. He answered me. He answered me. So let me ask you, are you talking to him? Are you sharing all of your heart with God? Are you praying? Are you really praying? Our God is a God who tells us to ask and seek and knock. To come to him, all who are weary and heavy laden. He's the God of all compassion, who's near to the brokenhearted. And so we recognize our weakness, and we allow our weakness to draw us. In humility we go, and we let our weakness draw us to Jesus to lead us to worship. And look, even if you don't know what to say, Maybe you're here today, like, I don't, I don't even know what to say. Look, here's the thing, just sit. Just sit in God's presence. Look, write this down, hurry is the death of prayer. Hurry is the death of prayer. We're so busy, so much going on. Hurry is the death of prayer, and so we just sit. We say, God, give me, give me a prayer burden here. Help me to know what to say. And you just, just share your heart. It's even okay to say, Lord, teach me to pray. The disciples did that in Luke 11.1. 1. They said, teach us to pray, O Lord. And so just say, God, teach me to pray here. Show me. In our weakness, we have an incredible opportunity to go to God, to go to the Lord of all, to call out to him, to draw near to him. And he wants you to come, listen now, because he delights in you. He delights in you. Get to Jesus. He knows your situation perfectly. He loved us first. He delighted in us first. We go to God. 
We trust him. And that's our next point here as we go into point two. So we get to Jesus, and then number two, we trust in Jesus. He has power greater than your problem. Trust in Jesus. He has power greater than your problem. So look at verse uh, 27. Let's pick it back up there and see what, what happens here. It says that she had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I'll be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, she came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. Okay, so there's a lot here. Let's cover this. Let me remind you first of the deity of Jesus Christ. He is Lord. Amen? He is Lord. He has power over nature, power over the physical world, power over the supernatural world. Jesus is our Savior, the Lord of all. And this woman hearing about Jesus Christ, she goes to him. And she comes up to him in the midst of this giant crowd. And get the picture in your mind now. She's behind Jesus. He's in front. There's, there's all these people around. And she thinks to herself, if I, if I could just reach out and touch him, that would be enough. What faith? What, if I could just get to him, even if I just touch his clothes... I could be healed. Her faith is so great. And so she does. She reaches out and touches his garment. And immediately it says, that's one of Mark's favorite words in the Gospels, in his Gospel here. He uses it all the time. And immediately, and immediately, you'll see it again in the text. And immediately she's healed. It says in verse 29, and immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Think of this, what this must have been like for this woman. The joy of the work of God in her life. Twelve years, sickness, shame. Twelve years, and in a moment, she's healed. Just like that, she's healed by Christ. That is divine power. That is God's power. It's interesting, this really is the great reversal here. Because, remember, she, whatever she used to touch was unclean. But now she comes up and she touches Jesus, who is God, and she's made clean. It's the great reversal here. She's now clean. She's free. And Jesus, of course, knows what's going on. He knows everything. He's God. I said he's God. He knows everything. And so when he says here, who, who touched my garments? He's definitely not speaking out of ignorance. Okay, he's omniscient. In fact, John 
2, 24 to 25 says, He knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And so Jesus isn't surprised here. He knows who touched him. Okay? Jesus is the master of the question. And Jesus wasn't like an electric fence where you just, and you're healed. Right? You just don't bump into him. His power to act or to heal or to perform was always under his control. Okay, but he says here, who touched my garments? I think to make a point, two things. One is he wants, church, he wants to make an example of her faith. Think of all the people that were there, pushing around, knocking them around. She comes with a touch of faith. She comes with faith. He wants to make an example of that. But here's the second thing I think, and I love this. He wants to pursue her. He's, he's drawing her out of the crowd, right? She touches him, and she, he's coming, and he's, he's drawing her out of the crowd. He wants to speak to her. Isn't that something? God Almighty wants to speak to this woman. You know, we go to God in prayer. We want to speak to God, but God also wants to speak to us. And so she comes with a touch of faith, and he wants to speak to her. And so it says in verse 33, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, right? She came in fear, a holy fear, and trembling. And she fell down before him, and she told him the whole truth. It was me. It was me. It was I did. I touched you. And he says to her now, imagine Jesus speaking right to her. And he says to her, and so endearing, daughter, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. What's he going to say to me? It was me, daughter. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. He calls her daughter. He says, go in peace. I believe that this woman trusted in Jesus, the Messiah, that day. What a beautiful story of her getting to Jesus and trusting fully in him. Okay. Time in. Back to Jairus. What's going on with Jairus? What's going on with our main man, Jairus, who's supposed to be getting Jesus back to his house? They were walking together because Jesus is going to go and he believes he's going to heal his sick daughter who's dying. Why does all of this waiting seem to be a big interruption to Jairus? Was he frustrated? He's desperate. The father's heart is breaking. His daughter's dying. He was desperate for his daughter's life. I mean, was he thinking, hello, I asked you first. Jesus, I saw you first. Why are we stopping? You ever do that? You ever get mad, well, a little upset when someone cuts the line in front of you? Kind of sneaks in in front? This bleeding woman takes Jairus' place, so to speak. She kind of cuts the line, and she cuts the line between a desperate father and his only hope, Jesus. And maybe Jairus was thinking, she's only bleeding, my daughter's dying. What's the holdup? Come on, we have to go. She's sick. Why the wait? 
You can imagine just Jesus begins to go with them, and now he's just waiting. He's just waiting. He's speaking to the woman. He's performing a miracle in her life. But maybe, as we'll see, Jesus had a greater purpose here. Listen now, for the greater glory of his name. For the greater glory of his name. Let's look back at verses 35 and 36. It says, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. Do not fear, only believe. He's performing a miracle in the woman's life. He comes and gets the worst news potentially that he's ever gotten in his life. He finds out that his daughter, his only daughter, has died. Jesus now looks at him and says, do not fear, only believe. He waited for Jesus. Jesus performs the miracle. People come at the same time and say, your daughter's gone. His daughter had died. And you wonder if you put yourself in Jairus' shoes, what, what was he thinking in the crowd that day when all that was happening, when he heard that? Was he just sad? Was he just broken? Was he shocked? Was he, was he bitter and frustrated at the lady who seemed to kind of cause a diversion, who was healed around the same time that his only daughter dies? What's he thinking? After all, Jesus is supposed to be going to his house when she interrupts. But listen now. Interruptions to us are divine plans and the purpose of God who's seated on the throne 24-7. Interruptions to us, to us, are divine plans in the purpose of God who is seated on the throne 24-7. He's on his throne. No one can knock him off. There's always a purpose in the waiting because God conforms all things to the purpose of his will. Ephesians 1.11. And so divine plans and the purpose of God are interruptions here. They're divine plans and the purpose of God who's seated on the throne 24-7. Jesus knew that the daughter died already. And so he says to him in verse 36, do not fear, only believe. Do not fear, only believe. Trust. Trust in me. He's like, Jairus, turn your fear into faith. Trust in me. And look now, not some faith in the unknown. Not some faith in faith. And certainly not some, don't worry, just be happy. It'll just work itself out. Faith in me. Do not fear, Jairus. Only believe in me, Jesus Christ, the Lord of all. Believe in me. I am God. Church, God is God, and so God is in control. God is God, and so God is in control. Over every detail, he's on the throne. And listen now, he knows every hair of your head. He loves you. The Bible says that 
not even a sparrow falls to the ground apart from the Father. And how much more, how much more does he care for you? You know, someone once asked the reformer Martin Luther, he said, where would you be if all your followers left you? You tell me, where would you be if all your followers left you? He said, I'd be right in the very hands of God. I'd be right in the very hands of God. I love that. He is in control. God is good. God is sovereign. And so because of that, he's even accomplishing his divine will through the pain and the brokenness and the hardship and the sufferings of this world. In this world, you will have trouble, Jesus said, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Do not fear, only believe. Do not fear, he says to Jairus, only believe. Well, I wanted to share this story with you. I, uh, over Christmas time, I heard an interview uh, with Johnny Erickson Tata. Have you heard, many of you know her story, Johnny Erickson Tata? Anybody? Many of you. Johnny um, um, became a quadriplegic in 1967 when she was 17 years old, and she dove into shallow water, misjudged it, and um, severed her spinal cord. God has, um, if you know her story, God has used her life remarkably. And you can, you can um, read about her life. She's got many books out. You can check out her website. Uh, I, think, I think it's called Johnny's Friends. But I just wanted to share this little story here. Um, and so she said in an interview that when she was first paralyzed, okay, when that happened and she was uh, in the hospital and then going through uh, the rehab there, trying to learn to even write with a pen in her mouth and everything else, that she was so despairing that she wanted to die. She said, it, it, was, it was so hard, I was so despairing that I just didn't want to go on another day. And uh, she said this, and I quote her, uh, she says, you know, her life is a testimony of where God can take us from when we embrace his son, Jesus. That her life is a testimony of where God can take us from when we embrace his son, Jesus. You know, not long after her accident, a friend of hers drew a picture for her. If you guys could put that up, please. Thank you. So someone drew a picture there, and uh, one of her friends, they brought it to her. And you can see it, it's cool. It's kind of a puzzle picture. And she said that as she um, gave her life to Christ and God began to teach her um, and give her hope, she said that um, she would look at that picture often. And this, this was Johnny's quote here of what she learned from God over the years. Let me read this to you exactly how she says it. So I quote her now. Sometimes when tragedy strikes... It's like God has come and he's upset the puzzle table. And all the puzzle pieces go flying. And we, the logical and rational people that we are, go scrambling, desperately hoping to find all the pieces so we can quickly put them all back together and make our life make sense. We want everything to fit. We want everything to be tidy and orderly. But wisdom, I learned is not being able to put all the puzzle pieces back together. Wisdom is trusting God even when most of the puzzle pieces go missing. We can find those pieces on the other side of eternity, but wisdom is trusting God 
even when my life doesn't make sense. So what are you supposed to do? Right now, today, and whatever you came in with today, many, many different situations of life going on, reflected in this room. But whatever's going on, look, do not fear, only believe. Do not fear, only believe. You can trust God. He is trustworthy. And he's trustworthy even when our life doesn't make sense. Even when the answer is yes. Even when the answer is wait. He's also trustworthy even when the answer to prayer comes back is no. I have a different plan. My ways are higher. My thoughts are higher. I have a different plan than you see on this side of heaven. Do not fear, only believe. And so I thought what would be helpful as I was thinking about this this week as we're kind of focusing on prayers, I want to give you five things now, a list of five things that you can pray. As you look to God, as you seek to trust God with all your heart, whatever's happening right now in your life, here's five things that you can pray. Number one, I wrote this down, God, help me to trust your character. God, help me to trust your character, who you say you are, that you are almighty, that you are faithful, that you are all-loving, that you are all-present, that you are on the throne, that you are merciful, that you are forgiving, that you are kind, that you are never changing, that you are a personal God. God, help me to trust your character. Here's the second thing. God, help me to trust your promises. God, help me to trust your promises. When the waves of life begin to flow over, God, help me to trust your promises. Anchor yourself deep at that time in the promises of God. The promises of God are sure. God, help me to trust your promises. Here's the next thing. God, help me to trust your timing. Number three, God, help me to trust your timing. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so your ways are higher than our ways. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. God, I thought maybe you were going to do it this way, but help me just to trust your timing and whatever you would have. Help me to believe you for that, God, and whatever you see fit. Which leads to our next one. Number four, God, help me to trust your best. Help me to trust your best. You are God, I am not. And so when the answer is yes or wait or no, help me just to trust your best, that you are for me, that if you are for me, then no one could be against me, that I am a conqueror in Christ Jesus. And finally, number five, God, help me to trust you with all of my heart. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge him. He will make your path straight. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. This, this, God, help me to trust you with all of my heart, really is the cry of the man in Mark 9. God, I do believe. Help my unbelief. It's okay to cry that out to God. God, help me to trust you with all of my hearts. This is the cry. 
Look, doubt your doubts, believe your beliefs. Trust in God, his best, his timing, his character, his promises. Prayer, ultimately, look, it's not getting my will done in heaven. It's getting God's will done on earth. And so we pray and we trust character, promises, timing best with all of my heart. Pray continually. Trust Jesus. Cast all your cares upon him. He cares for you. Get to Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Here's the final point now as we wrap up this story with Jairus and his little girl. Number three, worship Jesus. He is the Lord of all. Worship Jesus. He is the Lord of all. We'll pick it up in verse 37 now. He just says to Jairus, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue And Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumai, which means little girl, I say to you, arise and immediately... The girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. So you get the idea. He takes Peter, James, and John. They show up at Jairus' home. It is a funeral scene at Jairus' home. Back then and in that part of the world, they would actually hire professional mourners who would come. And they'd weep, and they'd wail, and they'd, they'd even play instruments, flutes most of the time, which is why Matthew's Gospel says that there were flute players there. It's this giant funeral scene. There's this huge commotion. And think of a house. It's just buzzing with people and loud cries. You know, back here, in our part of the world today, our funerals are a little bit, typically, they're a little bit more quiet. They're a little bit more reflective. Here, there's a lot of commotion, there's weeping, there's wailing, and so when Jesus shows up and basically stops the funeral, okay, why are you weeping, why are you crying, stops the funeral, tells everybody that she's just sleeping, she's going to be up in a moment, they all begin to mock him. They all begin to laugh at him. And what's he saying? Well, Jesus is basically saying that this is, what's happened to her is temporary, like sleep. He's going to reverse it in a moment. She'll be awake in a moment, even though she's really dead. Right? That's what he's saying. And so, so all this is going to change in a moment for her. When he says to her, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. For she was 12. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. Immediately he restores her life. Immediately, just like that. Lord of all, stopped the bleeding, healed the girl, rose her from the dead. Immediately he gives her life. That is power. That is power over life and death for the one who holds the keys. He raises her up and he'll do it again in his ministry, won't he? He's going to raise Lazarus in John 11. He raises a widow's son in Luke chapter 7. And he even says of himself, he says this, John 2.19, destroy this temple or destroy this body and in three days I'll raise it up. I will raise it up. And listen now, this is important. Jesus will raise all of us from the grave to eternal life with him 
when we turn from our sin and put our faith in Jesus Christ alone. He is the resurrection and the life, and he will give us as his people resurrection and life. John 11, I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus says. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? We worship, we cry out, we trust, we believe Jesus is the Lord of all. Lord over sin, Lord over death, Lord over Satan. There's an interesting story I read not too long ago. Told of a scientist named uh, G.B. Hardy. And uh, G.B. was in, uh, in, in full out research mode for the one true faith. And he said this, he said, I only have two questions. Has death been conquered and has it been conquered for me? At the end of all this, he said this after all of his research, he said, all religious leaders in the world have occupied tombs. Only Jesus' tomb is empty. He is the resurrection and the life. He will give us as his people, resurrection and life. He is the Lord of all. There is no other. He is God. He is to be worshipped. Look, this is the God we pray to. The same yesterday, today, and forever. This is the God we come to. This is the God we trust and we worship. So look, no more faking it. Share all of your heart with him. No more muscling it. Sit, exalt your Savior, and allow the weakness in your life to bring you to Jesus. He says, draw near to me. He says, come to me. He says, cry out to me. He says, trust me. And as you go, you can go with confidence. He understands. He also is our faithful high priest. And so you are promised mercy, church, and you are promised grace when you approach his holy throne. So let's do that now. Let's end this time here this morning with a time of corporate prayer. And let's not miss this opportunity to be able to get to Jesus, to cry out, to even sit today in his presence and to trust him. So would you bow your heads with me?